This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us today on the island is Dr. Brian Estelle, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a graduate of the University of Oregon, Westminster Seminary, California, and holds his Ph.D. from Catholic University of America. He's been a pastor in Maryland and Oregon and is the author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah. He's co-editor of The Law is Not of Faith, essays on works and grace in the Mosaic Covenant. And most recently, he contributed a chapter on Passover and the Lord's Supper to Children and the Lord's Supper. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Brian, and welcome to the island. Hi, Scott. It's good to be at the island. Well, you were on a cruise, your ship wrecked, and you floated to this island, and wonderfully, you had wrapped five books. Bible is already assumed, so beyond Holy Scripture, you had five books wrapped in waterproof oilskin material, so now you have reading material, until you're rescued. What are the five books you brought with you, just in case you washed up on a desert island? I'm assuming this was a warm water shipwreck. It's a good question. It was. Well, you know, that was always my chief fear of going in the water because the hearers probably aren't aware, but I know you are, that I commercial fish in Alaska for eight years and you only last about five minutes in that water. So I'm glad I survived. Reading list really isn't the top of your list when you fall into 32 degrees or 40 degree water. No, I paid for my own seminary education. So years ago, I used to get a little bit ambitious and take all these books with me during the summer when I went to go fishing. And of course, there was no time to read with 16 to 20 hour days. Fishing, cleaning, sleeping. Right. Fishing, cleaning, sleeping. Yeah. And an occasional banya, which I won't explain. (laughs) It's the Russian form of a steam bath. So the first book I brought is a book that I really enjoyed. I thought when you gave me this assignment, maybe I'd just close my eyes and go to my bookshelves in my front room because I have two great big bookshelves there with all classics. And so any choice would have been a good one. And most of them were Roman and Greek classics, which I know you have a great appreciation for as well. But I decided not to do that and instead be a little bit more deliberate. So the first book I chose was a biography of Augustine of Hippo by Peter Brown. It's been a long time since I read this book. I actually read it as an undergraduate and fell in love with Augustine. And as a young Christian, thinking about theological issues and categories, Augustine was very formative. And Peter Brown, as former classmate and now patristic scholar, German woman named Cornelia Horn, tells me this is a standard classic, and Peter Brown deserves the utmost respect. It's a great book. It's been the assigned text for the ancient church course since I was a student here in the mid-'80s, early-'80s. It's a great book. It's extremely well-written. Brown is a brilliant writer, scholar. You know, after you've read this, you feel like you know Augustine in a way that, frankly, you didn't before you read it. 
Absolutely. That's why I liked it so much. There's so many anecdotes about his life. You're thrust into major issues like the debate with Pelagius and on and on and on. So it did, I guess, what any great book does or any classic. It makes you want to go and read other works and learn more about the life of the person. And essentially, that's what I did. I can remember my undergraduate days taking philosophy courses and deciding to do a paper on Augustine's epistemology, being motivated you know, having read this. So I was delighted when I got here and was assigned to read this and and read it again. And frankly, (laughs) if I was trapped on a desert island when I wasn't body surfing or feeling the nice sand between my toes, I'd definitely pick up this book and I think I'd learn new things that I didn't get before. Which is high praise for a book because it's a short list of books that one would read not just once, twice, but deliberately, intentionally a third time. So you really can't get a higher commendation of it. Did it do its job and make you want to read Augustine himself? Absolutely. And so did you? Yes. Both books I was required to read, but some books I wasn't required to read. And his works are easily accessible in English. So, yes, I did. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What's next on the list? Next on the list was another formative person that I'm not embarrassed to say is one of my childhood heroes. I guess I can say childhood. It was actually in my 20s that he became one of my heroes. But given my age now, I think about that as my childhood. (laughs) And that's uh, two biographies about J.G. Machen. One was written by Ned Stonehouse, his successor at Westminster, and this copy is published by Banner. It remained the same throughout the years. And the other one by D.G. Hart called Defending the Faith, which is basically a reworking of his doctoral dissertation work and was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. When I had become a Christian and when I was at the University of Oregon and I was trying to land my feet in a good church, I happened to land in an Orthodox Presbyterian church there where Steve and Kathy Baugh were also worshiping. And so our friendship goes way back. And I was introduced to J.G. Machen as the great defender of the faith during the debates that were plaguing the Presbyterian Church and Old Princeton and Machen's coming out of Old Princeton and forming Westminster Seminary and then also the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And for me, I suppose as I thought back about this, Scott, I reflected here I had had a amazing, significant turn in my life when God grabbed hold of me and brought me to the realization of the truth of Christianity, number one. Number two, Machen was a lover of the classics, which I had come to love as well. Machen was also a mountaineer, and he loved the outdoors. And this constellation of various things that were so formative for Machen were also formative for me. And as I began to read about his stalwart defense of historic Protestant Christianity, I admired this man for all the pressure that he was under and all the soul-searching that he had gone through. And I devoured everything I could find by Machen at the time. And you talk about clarity of writing, Machen is well known for being a great stylist and can turn a sentence. So he had not only this profound education, both in the humanities and the classics, but then theologically and studied under the great, great Semitists and New Testament scholars over in Germany, spent time 
on the battlefield in World War One as a volunteer with the Red Cross, and that was very formative in his life. So to hear all these things that are worked into these biographies was tremendously influential. I did not know it was going to be at the time, but tremendously influential with regards to my own vocational calling, my intellectual pursuits, admiring Machen as a person of high caliber, on and on and on. What are the differences between the Stonehouse treatment of Machen and the heart treatment of Machen? Yes, great question. In fact, I was going to comment on that. I'm glad you opened up the door to comment on that. I read the Stonehouse biography first. I devoured it. Then as I began to learn more about Machen, I began to see some weaknesses in the Stonehouse book as well. What are some of those? Well, it's overly romanticized. And you can understand a very positive portrayal from a successor who was mentored by Mr. Machen, was there during the years of battle, theological controversy, ecclesiological controversy etc., etc. But then as you learn more about Machen's life, he was a real human being as well. We admire him around here. Uh, We esteem him in the highest, highest regard. He was esteemed as a New Testament scholar. And that's important, right? Sometimes we talk about Machen mostly in terms of his apologetics and his ecclesiastical struggles. But in fact, he was a very serious, well-regarded, almost universally well-regarded scholar, student of, teacher of the New Testament. He wrote very serious studies in the New Testament, studies of the origin of Paul's religion, uh, virgin birth, studies that were well-regarded by people who didn't agree with him theologically or ecclesiastically at all, right? Exactly right. In fact, to this day, I have heard it said that well-known and renowned New Testament scholars are still waiting for an intelligent response to the arguments that he levied for the virgin birth, and essentially they've not been answered. Which is saying quite a lot for a book that was published as long ago as that. Exactly. Or somebody who was on a completely different theological page and religious page than Machen, namely the journalist Machen, had the highest regard for him, knew him because of their residency close one to another there in the Baltimore area. But Machen had the highest, highest regard for Machen and his principles, even though he didn't agree with them himself. One of the things that anybody who's read Machen has to admire is his honesty. And so that maybe gets us to the heart treatment. In heart, we get a slightly different perspective on Machen, a later, not negative, but somewhat more historically critical and distant treatment of Machen. Exactly. I think Daryl's work is very helpful in that it has some distance to it. Daryl's very concerned to situate Machen's life in the context of the historical events that were happening and swirling round about him. So, for example, with the whole issue of fundamentalism, Machen had been caricatured by some as a fundamentalist. And of course, that word has to be unpacked according to what time period you're talking about. But Machen was not a simple-minded fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination. And he was extremely thoughtful. Some conservative movements in his own day, he was not enthusiastic by any means to get on the bandwagon just because they were conservative. He was thoughtful. He was very self-reflective with regards to what issues he became a part of. For example, the Scopes trial. William Jennings Bryan invited him to come and testify as an expert witness at the Scopes trial. And Machen said, you know, I don't think I'll get involved in that because this isn't really the fight I want to fight. Exactly. 
In fact, I was making use recently. I was uh, working on an article. It's now been published called uh, Preachers in Lab Coats and Scientists in Geneva Gowns. And I was making use of some of the material that Dr. Hart had analyzed with regards to Machen's involvement in the Scopes trial and his whole view of evolution. And it may come as a surprise to some hearers of this broadcast, but Machen, when asked about macroevolutionary theories, would often just nod and tip the hat to Professor Warfield because of his tremendous influence on Machen. Although there are other things, and Dr. Hart brings this out, that he also was no friend of those who would kowtow to the latest scientific fad or theory that was floating around. And so I think what's really great about Daryl's book is you get the real impression that Machen was his own man, thoughtful, deliberative, and tremendously humble, tremendously vexed by the sufferings and problems that he went through, especially as he saw his precious church rent asunder. And in both volumes, you get a nice feel for his life as well. In the Stonehouse volume, you have a wonderful picture into his really quite extraordinary relationship with his mother and the letters that were written from the battlefield and while he was studying in Germany and elsewhere. But also, you get these nice little vignettes in the Hart book as well in that regard. And Daryl's book particularly, though Ned Stonehouse's is well-written, but Daryl's is particularly well-written, engaging. And so if you're looking for a way into Machen, don't think just because it was published academically that it's inaccessible. And by the way, all three of these titles that you've mentioned, Peter Brown on Augustine, Stonehouse on Machen, and Hart on Machen, they're all available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu 760-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church What's next? The next book is one that I wouldn't have chosen if I knew I was going to be stuck on this island forever <laughs> But Scott reassures that me that the Coast Guard is coming in order to oh, yeah. rescue us. No, they'll come. I don't know how long, but the next book I chose is a book called The Intellectual Life, It's Spirit, Conditions, and Method by this uh, gentleman named Sir DeLangus, I think is how you pronounce it. And he is actually a Jesuit who wrote this book called The Intellectual Life. And it is a meditation on what it means to be an intellectual, the habits, the habitus, if you will, the customs the virtue of being an intellectual and how one succeeds as an intellectual. And early on, when my intellect and imagination came alive, because I just had developed a voracious appetite for learning during my undergraduate years and having been converted, it was like a light came on and I could not learn enough, not only about scripture, the Bible, and the religion that I had committed myself to, but also about matters in the world, and especially all things humane. Most of my training was in the humanities. And so as I started to begin to think about what my own calling was, a long, arduous process, 
but I knew that I wanted to go into some kind of work that was intellectual work. I happened upon this book and found it to be a jewel of a book. And there's a fair amount of other books published by Christian publishers, for example. Crossley just published one by a New Testament scholar, James Sire, who's done a lot of writing for InterVarsity Press for university students, published a book a little while ago on the intellectual life, the intellectual vocation of a Christian, and he's addressing particularly students, but also scholars and teachers and professors. Mark Knoll has written two books. There's a relatively new one out. Are you thinking of The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind? Yeah, and there's a follow-up to okay. it as well. They all make reference to this book, and it just shows you how many timeless statements this Jesuit priest makes about the intellectual life, and I have recommended to other people this copy. You, the hearers, cannot see it, but this one's well-worn. It is, yes. I bought other copies since then, so it's got the true test of a classic. You read it, you read it again, you read it again and again and again, and there's always something new and fresh coming forth from the treasure trove. And a lot of the statements have almost a kind of aphorism-type character to them. So he talks about, for example, in a chapter, the organization of life. And he's got subpoints: simplification, solitude, preservation of interior silence, the time of work, continuity work, mornings and evenings, the field of work, preparation for work. And it is not only well written by this French Jesuit scholar, but again, it's one of those special books that you return to again and again and again. And I guess now being called to be a scholar, it's especially the case. I say I would not have chosen this book if I knew I was stuck on this island for the rest of my life, because it's really a book that prepares one to go and do work as opposed to constantly drawing sources, encouragement, strength from the work intrinsic to itself. Does that make sense? A little bit, but keep going. So in other words, it's really written for those who have a love of learning, especially for those whose craft and life's calling is intellectual work. Is it kind of a how-to? Well, not in the sense of a bullet point or not in the sense of American pragmatism, you know, where five easy steps to becoming a successful intellectual. You mentioned habitus. Habitus is a disposition, an orientation. It involves a preparation. It involves certain dispositions. It involves a change in the person. Does that get closer to what he's up to? Yes. He's addressing, I think, virtue. So, for example, in a chapter called The Field of Work, something which I've thought about often, underlying many of his thoughts there is really a Pauline concept of humility. Do not think too highly of yourself. Do not think too lowly of yourself. Assess your gifts correctly. Assess your preparatory work correctly. I'll give you an example. In my field, Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, there have been no end of recent publications of Old Testament biblical theologies. James Barr makes the point that many of those attempts are way too grandiose in the scheme. What would be much better is choosing a motif or a theme and develop that with a view towards contributing to the field of Old Testament studies. What Sertinglis would say is, I agree. How much better that this particular scholar would have focused on one particular topic as opposed to writing the definitive work for all Western civilization for the next 200 years. Now, there are certain intellectuals... And certain people that are gifted, as we well know, you and your field, me and my field, who write a tome which will carry the day for four centuries, 400 years. 
But it's not very often that somebody hits an out-of-the-park home run intellectually. You're more likely, just to continue the baseball analogy, to get on base, hit a single, hit a double, do something useful. Exactly. And to recognize early on that life is short, that we all have limitations in certain areas, and then choose your field of work based upon that humble estimation of one's gifts, probable time that you will live, (laughs) all those various things. That's sage advice, and that's advice that really addresses the heart and the virtue of an intellectual, and in turn, as kind of a supplemental aspect, addresses the field of work and something very practical. But he's addressing a mental attitude first. Two things before we move on. First, quickly, what is an intellectual? That word is freighted in our culture, in our time, with some negative connotations. Egghead, nerd. What do you mean when you say intellectual? Well, as this gentleman brings up in the book, and I guess what I came to realize early on, having been born again, and frankly, having come from a very early life of squandering God's greatest gift to humans, namely our minds, it's a love of learning and a use of that greatest gift that God has given us namely our intellect, in a Pauline sense, to serve the generation in which he has placed us. So if God calls us to that kind of work, then one can be an intellectual with a view towards serving others in an edifying and upbuilding way. Second question that occurs before we move on, and that is, you're not a Jesuit now. You've known Jesuits, and you've studied at the Catholic University of America. How should the listener think about learning from people with whom you have fundamental disagreements? I did study at the Catholic University of America. That's where I secured my PhD. When people ask me about that experience, I studied in the College of Arts and Sciences, specifically in the Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages and Literatures, because I wanted to lay a foundation for what I thought God was calling me to later in my intellectual vocation. They treated me with the utmost respect and kindness, even though they knew I was an ordained Protestant minister. Now, this was greatly baffling to my sister-in-law, who is not a Christian believer any longer, raised in parochial and Catholic schools. And she said, now, Brian, tell me why an Orthodox Presbyterian minister is going to the Catholic university in order to study Hebrew. So maybe that's a good segue (laughs) to answering your question. Number one, because they had a great department, and I had a lot to learn from them. Two, the faculty under which I was studying was very eclectic. My advisor actually went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia before going on to Harvard, and so often when we would get together at lunch, we'd talk as much theology as we would Semitic languages. But I think there's a recognition that we don't have a corner on all truth. Because of the doctrine of common grace, we can greatly profit from erudite men and women in all kinds of fields by going and Semitic ourselves to what they have to teach us. And so basically, that's what I was up to, and that's what I was about. They treated me with the utmost kindness. And frankly, at a lot of Catholic institutions, they have not fallen prey to so many of the trends that we see in upper levels of academia, such as multiculturalism and diversity. They're concerned about scholarship. That's what they were concerned about at the Catholic University, Notre Dame, Marquette, Loyola, etc. Many of these schools are very concerned for the advance of the universe of knowledge, so to speak acquiring something about knowing God's world. And so they're very supportive of people, whether, uh, well, as they said, uh, we're happy to train some of you Protestants. Come on in. And they told me that. (laughs) So you don't have to agree with someone from whom you're learning on everything to learn something. And sometimes it's useful to be in a context where you disagree. Yes, that's right. 
And I was studying languages, texts as well, but I was not in the theology department, so we didn't have those fistfights, so to speak. And we had some very stimulating conversations over texts, even with my Jesuit professors. But also, maybe an important point to sneak in here is Protestant Catholics, if they're doing their work well, are really not going to disagree over the grammar of Akkadian. Those are grammatical laws, things which we can both come to the table and study. And just because I'm Protestant doesn't give me an advantage necessarily over knowing the grammar better than a Catholic. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. All right, well, what's next on your list of texts? The next thing, I had to pick some fiction, so I picked a novel that I read recently by Marilyn Robinson, not too recently, a couple years ago. I have started reading everything she has written because she is a profound modern American writer, Her story is back in 1980, she wrote her first novel and then did not write another novel for a couple decades. But she was instantly recognized as a great modern contemporary English author. And what I love about Marilyn Robinson is the beauty with which she writes. The book I chose was one that was published a few years ago called Gilead. It's a story about an aging father who recognizes that his years are quickly coming to an end, and he's writing his memoirs to his son. It's a beautiful book. It's a heartwarming book, and she pulled it off in just a wonderful fashion. So I thought I would love to read this again, and if the Coast Guard doesn't come and I'm stuck out there for five years, I could probably read it five or seven times and still stand back and appreciate her performing her craft at the highest levels and see the beauty of a well-wrought sentence by looking at this again. And being drawn into a powerful story. Exactly. I tell my students, maybe this is germane to the interview, you know, they often come up to me in spring semester, especially the first years, and they're eager to do their summer reading, and they're wanting book recommendations from me, and I think they're expecting some recommendation to roll off my lips about some great biblical theological tome, and I actually look them square in the eye and say, Go read some fiction. Because we are people who are hardwired to listen to stories, and we need to have our imaginations baptized, if you will, by good stories and good writers. And frankly, as T. David Gordon has mentioned of late so frequently, we are suffering in the pews often because we are sitting under preachers who have not carved out the proper reading diet, both in their preparation to become a minister, but also once they get to the pulpit. So I tell our students, I say, go read some great fiction. You will be a much better preacher If you have, as a regular part of your eating diet, reading diet, so to speak, good fiction. Marilyn Robinson does that, not only in her novels. I haven't read all of them, but I'm making my way through them. Uh, But also in her essays, she has some wonderful essays on serious topics that she's written. Most recently, The Death of Adam and Absence of Mind, which was just published last year. They are brilliant lectures that were given at Yale, the Terry Lectures, they're called, where the specific assignment for those who are invited to give those very prestigious lectures, and frankly, those who have been invited, reads like a who's who's list, is really to have religion and the humanities interact with science and specifically with evolutionary theories as they have impacted the field of science. And those essays are brilliant. Now, Scott only let me take so many books, so I couldn't take that along, but I did grab Gilead, and I highly recommend it as a good read. But the next time you're on the island, 
you'll maybe take the Terry lectures. What's your fifth title? And while you're grabbing that, let me remind the reader that all of the titles that you're mentioning here will be listed on the webpage for Office Hours. And so if you're listening through the mobile app, you can get it that way. Otherwise, you just go to the website. And so your fifth volume. The fifth volume is a book on mountaineering literature. Scott knows. The readers may not know. I've been an avid climber through the years, and I've been an avid reader of mountaineering literature. An argument could be made that this sport, namely mountaineering, has produced more substantive literature than any other sport. And you can understand that because I think it was William Blake that said, uh, great things happen when men and mountains meet. So when you go out on a large expedition or you go out into a kind of sporting event where it's not as safe as being out on the golf course, for example. Drastic things can happen if your partner doesn't stay awake. This kind of thing becomes great grist for the mill with regards to writing. So I have another bookcase at home that's just full of mountaineering literature, but I grabbed this one off the shelf. This is arguably one of the greatest classics in American mountaineering. Very briefly, it's called Everest the West Ridge by Thomas F. Hornbein. Dr. Hornbein was a medical doctor, an anesthesiologist, who was on an expedition in 1963. There was an American expedition on the west side of Mount Everest. The part of that expedition was going up what we call the standard or trade route called the South Call. So if you've seen a NOVA program or you've some of the sad catastrophes that have happened in recent years up on Mount Everest, particularly in 1996. Everybody can have a mental picture of what the Western Coombe looks like, the ice fall, and then going up the South Ridge. Well, what this book is about is on that expedition, there were two men, Dr. Hornbine and another person of some note as far as a character in recent American history named Willie Unsold. And they made their way up the West Ridge of Mount Everest. And what they did, almost all mountaineers and all students of the history of mountaineering recognized was a major historical turn in mountaineering during the 60s and 70s because they committed to this route. Just the two of them were on this route called the West Rib. And once they committed to going up this ridge, there was no turning back. And they were not seizing the mountain by expedition style. In other words, where you have a tent and then another tent a couple thousand feet up. And then if a big storm comes through or somebody gets altitude sickness, you can retreat. What they did was unprecedented in the 60s. They basically cut the umbilical cord and went up one side of the mountain over the top and down the south call and met up with a larger expeditionary force over there. They bivouacked, that is, they were forced to camp out overnight without tent, without supplies, except the clothes on their back and their boots at 28,000 feet. It was an amazing feat of bravery and heroism. And at that time, really changed what people thought was even possible to do in the mountains. And so in the next couple of decades, you had young, vigorous, strong, adventurous mountaineers beginning to climb alpine-style routes throughout ranges throughout the world that previously had never even been thought capable that that kind of thing could happen. So for me... This story is a kind of example of thinking outside the box that's transferable almost as a mega metaphor, if you will, <laughs> to all kinds of areas of life. In the jacket cover, there's a little statement from William Seary, who writes about Everest and mountaineering, quote, a universal symbol of human courage and endurance, an ultimate test of man's body and spirit. 
and what can be accomplished. So I thought I need some variety. And being a mountaineer, if I'm marooned on an island with no contact with the mountains or whatever, I have to have something to scratch where I itch. It's going to drive me crazy. And so this is my armchair mountaineering book uh, since I wouldn't have any access to the hills and the mountains. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.